0: Um, let me start just by doing this uh praying, and then we'll and then we'll jump into our our text tonight dear god i I love this night and I love this time, and i just uh, I get excited about getting to to be back first of all, just with um students with brothers and sisters that I've grown to love and uh and to get to be around them again but but also i I really do enjoy, and I'm grateful for this, this chance to get to open up Your Word with these people here tonight. And so I pray this, that as we teach, that it would not just be Your Word spoken um, from my mouth, but that it would be Your Holy Spirit moving through the Word tonight. Um, that He would come with power and conviction on us as we, uh, as we explore Your Word, giving us a greater love for it and giving us a greater love for You. I ask You that in the name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Alright, so we are in, um, we're doing something a little different this year actually. Instead of just one book all the way through, we're going to be in a few different books this year. So we're starting off in 1 Thessalonians and that's how we'll start this semester. We'll start the spring semester in 2 in Thessalonians and do a little bit in between those. But 1 um, Thessalonians is where we're going to be for, uh, for the beginning of this uh, semester. Uh, a scholar by the name of Gary Sjogren says that the letters to the Thessalonians were part of an innovative solution to a grave predicament. They are part of an innovative solution to a grave predicament. So what was that solution and what was that predicament? Well, to be able to understand that, we actually have to go back about one year before the letters to the Thessalonians were written. In about A.D. 49, the Apostle Paul set out on his second missionary journey. He and a guy by the name of Silas. So they came from Antioch, which sits up here in Syria, right above Israel, where where Jerusalem would have been. They launch out of Antioch, and the first thing they did, this was the original plan, was to go in this region called Galatia, which is where Paul had planted churches on his first missionary journey. And he wanted to go there, and he wanted to check on those churches and make sure they're doing well. While he was there in, I believe it's Lystra, one of the churches, there was a brand new convert from that last missionary journey, a a young man by the name of Timothy, and Timothy joined them for the rest of their trip. So the goal was to check out Galatia, these churches, and then move more into Asia Minor. But what they actually kind of encountered was in two different ways, we're not exactly sure how, but in two different ways, um, the book of Acts tells us that God did not allow them to move into Asia Minor, that he stopped them from that. And so after kind of moving up here into this region for a little bit and trying to get into here, they couldn't. They ended up kind of moving up along the north until they came to this port town called Troas. While they were in Troas, Paul had a dream of this man from Macedonia who came to him in the dream and basically just said, Please come help us. And Paul knew immediately what that was, that that was God calling him to go and bring the gospel into this region here, Macedonia. Um, This would be the first recorded time that the gospel, that a missionary brought the gospel into the western world, into Europe, was right here at this time. And so Paul sails over from Troas and moves first into this town, Philippi, where we get the letter to the Philippians. And he's there for a short time. He gets a small church going and then he ends up, uh, uh, a crowd gets mad at him. This is kind of a common theme. He gets beat up. Um, They they publicly beat him, throw him in jail, and then the next night basically ask him to move on, and they sent him. And so then he takes this famous road, the Via Ignatia, I believe is what it's called, into the, the providential, the capital city of Macedonia, which is where we're focusing here, and that is Thessalonica. And so he moves into Thessalonica, and Paul's strategy almost everywhere he went, the first thing he does is he looks for a synagogue. And a synagogue is kind of like the Jewish version of a church. It's kind of a mix between a church and kind of an education place. And and they would meet there on the Sabbath on Saturdays to study the scriptures and to pray. And so Paul's strategy was always first to go to the synagogue because he was a Pharisee who had spent a lot of time learning the Jewish scriptures, studied under one of the most respected Jewish teachers, rabbis of the day, a guy by the name of Gamaliel. And so he could step up with the credentials and people would listen to him. They'd let him teach in the synagogue. And so he would go into the synagogue and Luke says for three straight Sabbaths, for three straight weeks, he stepped up in the synagogue and began to teach from the Old Testament. But explaining to them how what the Old Testament was really pointing to was that the Messiah that they had all been waiting for was someone who was going to need to come and die, which was completely unexpected, that came from out of left field, but he was going to need to die and then be resurrected again on the third day. And after leading them to those, Paul would say, I have good news, I know who that guy is, and, and would tell them about Jesus. And Luke says that after three Sabbaths that he had began to, actually a number of the Jews in the synagogue became, like, came to faith in Christ along with Um, what were called God-fearers, or devout Greeks. These are Gentiles who had not fully converted over to Judaism. That is, they hadn't joined in every, specifically, circumcision was kind of the main marker of being a Jew. They hadn't taken that step and maybe weren't following all the codes, but they didn't believe in the Roman gods. These God-fearers believed in the one true God of Israel. And so they would go to the synagogue, and a number of these God-fearers, including, Luke says, some prominent women of the city. Macedonia was kind of known for... um, women having more civic uh, authority and influence in this region of the world than they did in other regions. And so a number of leading women in the city actually came to faith as well. And so shortly after being there, he's, he's winning a number of converts. This young church is starting to get going, and then there are a number of Jews who in the synagogue are not happy about this. They're not happy that Jews are leaving what they believe to be the only true faith to go and follow this new sect of Christianity. And so they began to stir up trouble. Luke says they go, the word he says is they go and they gather some rabble from the city, which sounds like something Anthony would say. Um, Basically they get some rough characters to come and they kind of start this mob and start this riot, this uproar over Uh, over Paul and Silas and Timothy. And and that wouldn't be too hard to do back then. If you wanted to get people mad in the city back then, you go to the Jews and you tell them that Paul is anti-God because he's trying to win people away from the true God of Israel. And then you go to the Gentiles and you tell them that he's anti-Caesar because he's proposing a new king, this King Jesus, that we should be following instead of Caesar, and that was enough in a town like Thessalonica, who did not want Rome to come in and accuse them of treason, who did not want to lose their status as a freed city, a city with extra privileges, that was enough to get people worked up. And so the crowd starts to go so crazy that they run towards this guy named Jason, his house. Jason's house is where Paul and his people had been staying for that time. And so they run to Jason's house with the idea of grabbing Paul, Silas, Timothy and taking them out. And we don't really know what their plans were at that time. We don't know because Paul happens to not be there. And so instead they grab Jason and they grab, it says, a number of the other brothers, other Christians there and they grab them and they drag them before the city authorities and they basically say, these people are stirring up trouble. These Christians are stirring up trouble all over the world and they are causing problems and they are saying that there's another king we ought to worship, one other than Caesar, this Jesus And so the authorities kind of scold them and they make Jason post bail in order for them all to be released. Otherwise, they'd have to stay in prison. They send them home. And and the anger is so great against Christianity and the anger is so great against these apostles that the church, the young church, has to sneak Paul and Silas and Timothy out that night under cover of darkness. And so they sneak them out and they go down to this, this town called Berea from there. Now, this is the grave predicament. Paul's Paul's plan everywhere he went was to either stay long enough to get the church on its feet or to leave somebody behind like Timothy or Titus or someone who would help establish the church, who would pick leaders in order to oversee the church and who would help teach them some of the fundamentals of doctrine. Um, But that didn't get to happen because he got rushed out of Thessalonica. And so he gets pushed over into Berea and there's this young church that just got underway. It's maybe only three weeks old, probably a little bit older, maybe a few months, but it's not very old. Young church that's left there in a place that is violently opposed to it. So violently opposed that when the Jews there find out that Paul is in Berea, they chase him down to Berea and start, um, start a mob and a riot there to get him run out. And so, this is how against Christianity they are. Paul will eventually have to leave here. He eventually finds himself down in Corinth, about 190 miles away from Thessalonica. But he can't stop thinking about them. He he can't get it out of his mind, wondering whether or not this young little church, facing so much violence and so much anger and so new to the faith, is going to make it or not. And 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 he actually says in this letter that he tried several times to get there but he couldn't make it. He couldn't get there. He kept coming up with new plans and nothing was working. He even says at one point that like Satan was hindering me from getting to you. And so then he says, at, at the point that I could take it no longer, I'm dying, i got to know. There are rumors that the church is still there. There are rumors that they're doing okay, that's trickling down through this region of Achaia. But he doesn't know, he wants first-hand knowledge, and so when he can't take it anymore, he sends Timothy to sneak back into the city. Because Paul's got ministry in, because Paul's recognizable, he can't go back in there at this point. But he sends Timothy to sneak back in to find out whether the church is still there, and how it's doing. And so Timothy goes, and then 190 miles to Thessalonica, and 190 miles back to tell Paul this amazing news. Not only is the church still there, but it's growing, and it's, it's surviving. This is kind of actually crazy. Through hundreds and hundreds of years of the Turkish Ottoman Empire and through all kinds of other things, there's actually still a church in Thessalonica, which is kind of cool. Um, but he says the church is growing, and so Paul gets so excited. Timothy tells him it's growing, it's doing well, but there are some issues. The first is they're facing a lot of persecution. And that persecution means actually a number of them are wondering if they're okay. Like, if we're really like pleasing God, then why are we suffering so much? Like, if, if we're really doing the right thing, if we're really His people, then why is life so hard for us right now? And on top of that, they don't know some of the like simple, they know a lot of stuff, but they don't know some of the, the main points of doctrine that need to be known for them in this young church. And, and there are some of them that are wondering a little bit, maybe even about Paul, why he would come and then bail so quickly. And and. Because they're pretty new to the faith, a lot of them don't understand some of the basics of Christian ethics. And so Paul, immediately when he gets news, sits down to pen this letter. Actually, he dictates it to somebody. And he speaks out this letter. And so Timothy barely gets a rest. He just traveled 190 miles back. Paul writes out this letter and says, I'm sending you back, man. And so Timothy has to go back again to Thessalonica and sneak in this letter. And, and, and this is what would happen. Timothy would have stood up in an illiterate conversation in an illiterate congregation where almost nobody could read. So this is the way they would have heard it. Timothy would stand up and as someone there on behalf of Paul and as someone who got to hear Paul actually dictate it, he would do his best to read it as Paul meant it, as, as Paul said it. And so this is what he would have stood up and said to this church with the letter that he had just snuck in from Paul. I don't want you to read it. I want you to just, you can close your eyes, you can look up, I want you to experience it as the church in Thessalonica would have experienced it 2,000 years ago. Paul, or Timothy would have unrolled this piece of paper, this scroll, and he would have read this. Paul, Silvanus, that is Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And in it, what we get to see, like in most of Paul's letter, is foreshadowing of what he's going to be talking about all the way through. It is a letter written to thank God for the fact that they exist and they grow. It's a letter that is written to assure them of their state, that they do belong to God, that they are His, and a letter to encourage them both in their, um, in their actions and in their doctrine. And so we're going to get to see some glimpses of that tonight. Um, normally I'd have somebody else read for me, but I want to make sure we can kind of move. So I'm going, to, I'm going to go ahead and just read, and we'll jump into it. Verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Um, this is how all letters back then started. The standard letter was who's writing first, Drew, to my friends at the table. And then Paul does this in every one of his letters. He actually uh, opens and closes with this word. He takes the word greetings in the Greek, karen, and he he switches it up to kares, kareis, grace. And opens and closes every letter with this, grace to you. Because Paul, every bit of who Paul is, every bit of his ministry, every bit of his identity and everything that he says the church is and wants the church to be is couched in this, grace, gift, undeserved from God. That is what makes us who we are, Paul says. And he starts with grace and then the standard Jewish greeting, shalom or peace. Um, Verses 2 and 3. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, I am full of gratitude. And the reason why is he says, because I know that you're Christians now. I know that you're still there. I know that you're legit, that the gospel stuck when we spoke it to you. And and here's how. The question is, so, so how does he know this? And that's actually what the whole first chapter of Thessalonians is about. This is how you can know that the Thessalonians were Christians. These were the markers that stood out to Paul that made him go, this is real. It really happened. And you guys are legit. This is really happening. Um, the first, he says, is this kind of triad. You'll see this a bunch in the, in the Thessalonian letters. Paul likes to speak in threes, in these triads, and he'll group things together like this. Um, he says this, um, I'm remembering before God our Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. Paul actually loves those three things. Faith, hope, love. He holds those things up a lot and he'll come out in these over and over again in these letters uh, these themes will get touched on. But the key is that all three of those things are producing effort in them. It's producing energy. He says your, your faith that is bringing out work And I'm thankful because I see the love that is causing you to labor for one another and labor for the gospel and your hope in Jesus Christ that is producing in you a steadfastness, a faithfulness. And Paul says, when I saw those things, I could tell, and I thank God because um, when Timothy told me about them, I knew that you were Christians. He gives some other signs here. Verses 4 and the first half of 5. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in full conviction. So there's another triad. The, our gospel came to you not just in word, but also in um, power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in full conviction, he says. Um, he recognizes this, that um, I could have come to you, he says, and just preached the word to you. I've gone to a lot of places where I just preached the word. And didn't see anything, Paul says, but when I came to you, I saw the Holy Spirit start to act in your life. I saw power, I saw conviction, I saw amazing things start taking place in your life and around you. This is, um, anytime, we, anytime we teach, by we, I would, I would say, me, Scott, Rachel, anytime you talk to friends, anytime we preach... Um, This prayer ought to always be with it, that that when we teach that it would not just be words that come, but that it would come with the Holy Spirit and with power and with conviction because without those things, those words do nothing. But Paul saw those taking place and that's how he knows. He says this, that's how I know, and this, this word makes some people a little bit uncomfortable, that's how I know that God chose you. Some people don't like that. That opens up a whole like theological can of worms that we don't have time to get into this idea. Because the idea is if God, if Paul is saying that God chose the Thessalonians, what does that say about the people who didn't respond? Does that mean that God didn't choose them? That God didn't want them? And we really don't have time to tackle it right now. We'll, We'll have some time as we move on this year to dig into a little bit of that stuff. But suffice it to say, chosen, there's two key points that are made when he says that you were chosen by God. The first is this, that you are not the initiator in this relationship with God. That you are not the one who um, was so, were so smart that you figured God out and got yourself saved. You are not the one that was so perceptive or so spiritual that you were able to, to see, see how all of this comes together and make it happen. No, God first comes to you in grace. I believe in free will. I believe the way that I choose, but I believe that, that I am not just a Christian because I'm smart or because, because I'm spiritual. I believe, first and foremost, God is the primary agent and He worked in me. But there's another reason that this word chosen is so interesting and so beautiful here. And that is because the Thessalonians are living in the middle of a town and in the middle of a culture where everyone else rejects them where nobody wants anything to do with them and they're violent towards them and they're persecuting them and some of them, their own families have disowned them for being Christians. Nobody chooses them. And yet God says, I need you to know this, my brothers and sisters, that the only one that counts chooses you. That the only person whose opinion matters, that one wants you. That one chose you. And, and that becomes so critical for us in our own relationship with God and our own ability to stay faithful as more and more it's becoming the case here in the States and in the West that being a Christian is not something that makes you well-liked anymore. And more and more we will experience rejection for the things we believe and the things we choose to do. It is critical to know this, that when everyone else rejects you, that the one person that matters still wants you, chose you, Loves you. And that's critical to our ability to stay faithful. The last half of verse 5 says this because our... um, Sorry, let me make sure I got it. Um, Oh, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake... And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So chapter 2, he says, you know what kind of men we were among you. Chapter 2 is going to describe that. So we'll get to see that. The focus here is on the Thessalonians' imitation of Paul and Silas and Timothy. And he says, the way you specifically imitated us and Jesus is by receiving, not receiving the word necessarily. Jesus didn't have to receive the word. But as you received it, you faced a lot of affliction and yet you received it in joy. Joy in suffering is one of the primary markers that Paul says, I know you're a Christian because you suffer with joy. That is a mark of Christ's work in a person, that they can suffer with joy like Him. And now he says you're becoming examples to others around you. Verses 8 and 9, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. He continues here with his list of fruits. This is how I see that you're growing. This is how I see that you're a Christian. Starting from the end, he says, you turned away from idols, which is like the definition of repentance, to change your mind and therefore your behavior, to turn, you turned away from idols to serve the living God. Now that statement's actually kind of interesting because Acts only tells us that when Paul was there, that Jews who would not have been worshipping idols, became Christians, and God-fearers, who would not have been worshipping idols, became Christians. What that seems to mean is that after Paul left, that these people that he won over went out into the rest of the community and they started winning idol worshippers over into into the gospel. And so they are moving forth. In fact, he says right above it that the word of the Lord has rung out from among you into the rest of the world. That, that phrase there, the word of the Lord, is the message about Jesus, the gospel. So the gospel is coming out for you. Here's another marker, he says, that even in the middle of persecution, you kept spreading the gospel that you didn't just play it safe and keep yourself together, but that you loved this enough that you began to spread the gospel out. That's a mark of someone who knows Jesus. And then the last one is an interesting marker. Here's the last way Paul says, I could see that you really are a Christian. It's kind of odd. Verse 10, he says this, "Um, You turned to the living God and you began to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So, when's the last time you heard this as a great description of what a Christian is? A Christian is someone who waits for Jesus from heaven. That's, that's not one that really makes it on our radar very often, makes it on our list of Christian activities, but that one actually is really, really big it probably should be on our radar because it will play itself out to be key to both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. A Christian adequately, rightly, patiently looks for the day that Jesus will come back from heaven, and that is going to affect their lives. We're going to see that play out in the letters. In fact, we're going to see a lot of this first chapter play out in the rest of the letters, the themes that are hit on here. But for now, I just want to bring you to this one idea, kind of standing back the broad picture. It's fascinating here that Paul makes a lot of straight, uh, like strong evaluations about them. That he looks at their life and says, basically what Paul is saying is, I can look at someone and gauge if they are Christian or not, good or bad, if you are mature or immature. I can gauge it and I will say it. Basically what he's doing, he's judging them. He's judging all of them. Which is something that we're kind of uncomfortable with, right? Right? Like, that, that, that's like the last thing in 21st century Western culture. That's like last thing you're supposed to be able to do. Paul has no problem doing it. He doesn't mind. You can see in other letters, and you'll see a little bit of it here, but you'll see in other letters. He also doesn't mind judging people and saying, yeah, you're, you're coming out on the bad end of this one, right? He doesn't mind saying, you are immature. You're weak. You're acting like little kids, um, he judges people, but, but we don't like that, and, and it even seems a little bit weird, because we know in Matthew 7, Jesus says, don't judge people. The famous verse, do not judge, and we always say it in the King James, do not judge lest ye be judged, okay, um, the only time we speak in King James, um, but, uh, so do not judge lest ye be judged, so, so, so then what's going on here? Jesus says don't judge, Paul says I'm judging. Um, does he get a pass because he's an apostle? Is he just kind of making his own rules up? Is that something that is expected of the the Thessalonian church to do? And is that something that's expected of us to do? What do we do with that? Take 60 seconds, stand up, stretch, do whatever you got to do, and then Scott is going to come up and he's going to tackle that issue for us.
1: Okay, so I I know that it's the beginning of school. And how of you are excited to get into the semester? Maybe you're not, um, but I, I want I want you to take a trip with me the future when you get into your career. Okay, so for some of you that's four plus years. Sorry about that. For some of you, it's less than a year, and you're nervous about that. I get it. Um, but I want you to picture your yourself in your first job. Okay, you you got the job that you wanted. You got into the company that you wanted. In fact it's it's exactly why you you went into uh, the, the the program that you went into was to get into a, a company like this to to work for this company or, or someone like it because you believe in their cause. And so you get in, you're excited and you, you tell you tell everyone there that you're excited to be there, that, you're, that this is why you went into this program, that you you love the uh, the mission of this company and you want to champion the cause. Um, and and uh, you're not you know you're excited to get paid but you're not just not just there for a paycheck there's something more like you feel a sense of purpose there and and you start demonstrating that okay this is you, you come in early you stay late you do the extra things you take on and and all of a sudden, you're you're finding you you're meeting and getting to know the the other employees and you know they're not all perfect and you're not perfect and it's not perfect but It works, and you get to be a part of a team that's doing some amazing Okay, so a few months go by, and then another person is hired, uh, and they're kind of maybe similar age than you, and they work more in the sales department, so they're going to kind of be going out and representing the company, and they start, and they're just as excited as you were. They're saying all the same things that you said. They're excited to be a part of this company. They want to to advance the cause of this company. They, They... Things. They 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 want to be a team player. They're not just in it for uh, the paycheck. They really believe in in what's happening. And then you are working alongside them. And over the next months, and maybe months to come, you start to see and notice there's a disconnect between what they said when they started, and how they're actually performing, and, and what they're actually doing. You notice they're they're using the business company time, personal time for. For their own use, they're, you know, surfing, to be working on projects, they're coming in late, they're leaving early, they're, they're put, put, dishing on responsibilities to other people. You overhear them, trashing uh, some of the other team, teams, you you overhear them on the phone telling somebody, yeah, I don't really care about this job, and just I'm just here to kind of work my way up the company or whatever. And all of a sudden, you have this choice because you've gotten to know this person and you've to care for this person. And now you have a dilemma. Because you believe in the mission of this of the company and you and you and you, you really want to do what's right for the company, but you also care for this person. So what do you do? How do you handle it? Um, you know there's lots of ways to handle it. But I wanna I wanna I want I want us to pause in that moment and go, okay, is it okay for you to make right judgment about somebody? In that moment. Now, now this, this person, they're representing the company. So it's not just somebody that, that maybe nobody will notice, and maybe it's okay, maybe they'll grow out of it. No, they're representing the company. And so if you care for this, this is what I would encourage you to do. If this happens to you, I would encourage you. If you, if you know them, go to them first and say, hey, I see some stuff happening, and this is what I see happening. I mean, I, this, isn't, this isn't cool, this isn't the way this should be. And, and you need to turn things around, and I'm going to give you some time to do that. But if you don't, then I need to I need to I need to tell somebody because this isn't right. The things you're doing aren't right. Okay? So now let's now let's jump back to this question that Drew asked. Is it okay to judge? Is it okay to, to make an evaluation like Paul does? Um Drew Drew mentioned this famous passage in Matthew chapter seven. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. I want to look at it because I want us to I want us to get a feel for what, what Jesus is describing in this, um, in this text. Matthew 7, starting at verse 1. He says, Judge not, this is ESV, that you be not judged. ESV makes it convoluted. But anyway. He um, says, For with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Uh-oh, wait a minute. So maybe I shouldn't judge. Maybe I shouldn't, you know, evaluate someone, else, someone else's spiritual fruit or their performance, you know, or, or you know, maybe I shouldn't have any sort of opinion about what someone else, maybe a negative opinion about anybody else because, is that what it's saying? Let's keep going. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but, but do not notice the log... That is in your own eye. Can you fit a log in your eye? Has anyone ever seen a log fit into somebody's eye? No. Jesus is using something called hyperbole. He's using an extreme, silly, ridiculous answer or, or, or example that to to prove a crazy point that you have a log in your eye. I think people would have laughed when he said it. By the way, he said he did this on the. This is the um, Sermon on the Mount. The summer I got to actually go to the Sea of Galilee and sit in the place where he would have taught this sermon, so now I can actually picture where this took place. It's really cool, by the way. Um, (laughs) Side note: Uh, So, so he's, you know, I think people sitting around would have like laughed at the fact that he said a log in your eye. So he's not talking about it's not you're not ever supposed to have a negative opinion about anybody else. That's not it. What he's saying is, don't be a hypocrite. If you've got a log in your eye, don't worry about the speck in your brother's eye. If, 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 if you're showing up an hour late to work, if you're stealing money from a company, from your company, and then you go to your, your fellow employee and say, hey, I noticed you're f- late. What's up with that? Hey, I noticed you were on Facebook for like five minutes. What's your deal? And they know what you're doing? That's the example. It's like, okay, you have no right you have no right to go to that guy or that, that person and, and, and say those things if you're doing all this. So this is the example. Let's keep going because Jesus really kind of helps us. He says, Or how can you say to your brother, let, let me take the speck out of your, your eye when there's, there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He no, notice he says, then you will be able to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So, if you care about this person, you will be able to help them with what's going, with what they're struggling with, with whatever's going on. Then now go to verse 15. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So, he says, now he's saying, Beware of... These people, they look like sheep, but they're really wolves on the inside. How do you know if a, if a person looks like just one of the sheep or the flock, but is actually a ravenous wolf? How, how would you know that about a person? Unless you are close enough to get to know them. Unless you um, are with them to see the fruit of their life, to be able to evaluate what's really going on. You won't. You won't know. And so Jesus is actually saying you need to be aware of these things that that can happen. Then he goes on in verse 18. A a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And so Jesus is saying if you're close enough to see the fruit of someone's life, you'll be able to know whether it's a healthy tree or not. And that's okay. That seems to be what Jesus is saying, to, to, to be close enough to recognize fruit. Now, why do I say all that? And what does that have to do with Thessalonians? Here's, here's the point I want to make, that I, I want to encourage you guys uh, to, make, to, to learn to be critical of and to evaluate the culture around you. Secondly, but firstly, to be able to evaluate your own fruit in your own life. Um, and so I, I, wanna, I want us to talk for the just remaining, I don't know, five, ten minutes, about the two different cultures that exist in the Christian world. Um, the first one is, whoa, that's missing first one is, nope. There you go. Cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity. Um, Versus Cultural Christianity versus Christian culture. Now, we're going to talk about Thessalonians as as a beautiful example of of Christian culture that's been changed by the gospel and that does things that the world doesn't understand. Okay, we're going to talk about that in a second. But cultural Christianity, what do I mean by that? Well, what do you think I mean by that? Yeah.
0: Of Christianity based on different cultures. So the way my Christianity might be at home won't be the
1: same as exactly. So okay. It's just a well, that's that's a that's a beautiful point. That it's dri- driven by this, and so wherever your culture is, that's what drives this. And that's and that's kind of the issue. So um, raise your well, actually, yeah. Th- this will be good. <laughs> don't don't raise your hand yet. Okay. But when I, when I say, raise your hand, raise your hand. Okay. In a second, raise your hand if, you are, if you're raised in or, or from a, a city or a community or a culture that values morals and moral, moralistic people or good people more than Jesus. Like a, a, a city or a community that would, would really rather have good moral people or moralistic things, morals, more than Jesus they, they, they don 't really value Jesus as much as they value good morals. Raise your hand if you grew up in a culture like that okay okay so this is what i 'm describing uh, you, you've probably heard this phrase that that, that we 're in the Bible belt, right this is the Bible belt, and there's a lot of good that can come come from it, and I think there's a lot of influence that that the church has had on culture and the gospels had on on maybe midwest culture but but at some sometimes there's this, this, this kind of misunderstanding about um, the culture we live in, and I think that uh, you know that Thessalonians really to me highlights something very clear, like gospel cha- changed by the gospel, culture changed by the gospel does certain things, and I'll list them here in a second. And and when I look around at our culture, I see it this kind of a growing disconnect. And, and yet, uh, I remember having a conversation, this, this was huge for me, I remember having a conversation with, the, with someone, and uh, in all seriousness, we were talking, I met him at the gym, we, were, we had lunch, he was a student, he's moved on now, his name's Joey, You'll, you won't know him, um, but he said, I asked him where he's from, he says he's from Texas, I asked him, uh, he knew what I did, so that always comes up, uh, I asked him if he, if he went to church, he said, yeah, I'm a Christian, you know, so I'm from you know I'm from Texas. That's kind of it. Was like if if you're from Texas, you're a Christian, kind of a thing. And and, and so we start talking, and he couldn't remember when or where he was baptized, um, but he he knows he's a Christian because, don't laugh. I'm okay. This is serious. I'm serious. I'm okay. I, okay. He said when he he knows he's a Christian because whenever he hunts and he kills something, he prays, and so that was that was his way of knowing that he had a connection with God because of that moment. And so I started asking him so okay, so what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, you know, I think you you know, you pray once in a while and God, you know, provides things for you and and um, I asked him if he, you know, knew much about the Bible and knew much about Jesus and he really didn't. He didn't know he didn't know much of it, but but he really believed he was a Christian. Coming into that lunch, he was a Christian and I had to kind of break some bad news to him. I said, you know, well, you know, the Bible never actually talks about either one of those things as being a, what it means to be a Christian. It means, you know, like following Jesus. you got to know who Jesus is and what he did. Um it's like, huh, okay. You know, he's just kind of like, okay. And then we changed, the ch- subject changed quickly. But, but it was this reminder that, you know, some of us grew up in, Cultures, And I, I, I grew up in a, a city that was very much like this. It's like, yeah, we all go to church, right? We're all Christians, right? We've been a Christian since we were born. And what the Bible seems to be saying is, we, at some point, we need to be able to evaluate some things. And first, we need to be able to evaluate some fruit in our own life. And, and then we can, I think, it's, it's wise to be able to evaluate the culture around us and go, okay, are we really buying into Jesus or just better morals? I heard somebody recently say this about Jesus and I thought this is brilliant. In speaking about the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Jesus didn't preach the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus didn't come so that good people would become better people. Jesus wasn't crucified. He wasn't killed. He wasn't murdered. He wasn't, he wasn't attacked and, and, and killed on a cross because he wanted to teach nice people how to be nicer people. So think about that. When, when Christianity is, is reduced down to um, something that has to do with morals, um, or, or how, to, how to feel better, how to, how, to, you know, how to be better, or if it's just God blesses me so that I can do whatever I want with my life, then we've at some point changed um, what it means to be follower of Jesus, and so this this is a this is an interesting thing. So I want you to think about that. Maybe in your own life, is this is this how I do I see Jesus this way? Do uh, you know? Do is this how I was kind of shown what it means to follow Jesus? Because I think this this um, church in Thessalonica they really help us see that what happens when the gospel comes in. So the gospel is this amazing news that God who's, who creates and who gives and then we take and we abuse and then God out of His love pursues to redeem us and to restore us through Jesus. Like, It's an amazing, it's an amazing story of God redeeming and restoring the world back to Himself through Jesus. And, and we get to we get to be a part of that. And so when, when a person comes to realize that, when the Spirit like, reveals that to them and helps them understand who Jesus is, and they, they accept that, and then, then all of a sudden they start to do things that are just counter-cultural. They, um, you know, He who is first shall be last. If you want to be the greatest, be the servant of all. Jesus said, I didn't come to serve but to be... Sorry, the other way around. I didn't come to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Like, like th- those are those are not things that are advantageous in our culture to always be the servant to always um help others to always put put yourself put others ahead of your own your own needs and desires and wants and like that's not the way this works in our world but w- yet when you become a christian when you follow jesus when, when you recognize what Jesus has done, then like what else is there to do like how else? That's what He did. Why wouldn't I do what He did? And so, this church in, in Thessalonica, that, these nine things that, that, that jumped out at me, that they did, that, that describe what this is, a, a Christian culture. They, they, they had work that was produced by faith. Okay, Not work produced by control or manipulation, but work. They were working for the Lord that was all by faith. They, they, were, they had a labor prompted by love. Not by guilt, but by love. They were wanting to serve out of love. They, were, they had endurance, okay, inspired by hope in Jesus. They, they had a hope in Jesus coming so they could, they could endure anything. They, uh, and they did. Um, they, they wanted to intimidate, or sorry, imitate, not intimidate. Imitate, those are two different ideas. Uh, they wanted to imitate Paul. Because they, they wanted to be like the Lord and they said, well, Paul's, Paul's the closest we got, so let's be like him. They, they welcomed the gospel with, with joy despite persecution. Who does that? Who welcomes something that brings persecution to them with joy? Who welcomes it with joy? You, you don't do that unless something's changed on the inside. Um, they modeled the Christian life to believers everywhere. Um, the gospel, the message, like rang out, spread out from them. They preached the gospel, not just in action but in words. It's it spilled out of them and it and it spread. This was a big one, in their culture, and that would have been somewhat of a a um a, well a death wish at some level culturally. They turned from their idols. Did you know in in, in first century culture, especially in Greek culture, because there was thousands of gods. To, to deny all those gods and to just believe in one, they, the culture called Christians atheists because of it. It's true. They sometimes refer to Christians as atheists because they only believed in one. That's crazy. And so they turned from their idols, and like, like Drew pointed out, they were, they were looking for Jesus to return. They were waiting for Jesus to return. They had a hope in Him, and they longed for Him to return. That, that set them apart from the culture around it. And here's my point. Um, and here's, here's really where I wanted, wanted to go. And I'm going to give just a minute or so, a couple minutes of reflection. Um, but just, you know, th- it's the beginning of the year. Um, some of you have come from great summers. Some of you come from depressing summers. Some of you worked all summer. Some of you traveled all summer. Some of you've had busy summers. Some of you've had boring summers. And you're here. And it's the beginning of the school year. And you have some choices to make about what this semester is going to be like and what this year is going to be like. And, and, and I, I'd love to encourage you to do some soul searching, to do some evaluating of yourself, of, your own, of the fruit of your life. And maybe ask some people that know you, what do you see in me? What do you see me about? What do you see me most excited about? What do you see me most um, interested in? What, what comes out of me? Um, but for you to do some soul searching, to evaluate your fruit, to see is is it is it is is there anything in you that that is um, that is being changed by Jesus? And if you're here and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, maybe that's that's the first place you start. Is is this is this true of Jesus? And what do I believe about that? And we'd love to talk to you more about it. But also, I want to challenge you with this—not not not to go around and start evaluating everybody you know, okay? But to start having your eyes to see this, because you're immersed in it. Uh, It's it's like it's like um, it's like a fish swimming up to another fish, saying, "How's the water?" And the other fish going, "What's he talking about?" Like we're we that's uh, sometimes when I talk about. Cultural Christianity, um, it's, it's like saying to you, hey, how's the water? And you're like, what's he talking about? Because we are immersed in it, in this area. So be able to recognize the difference between um, a culture that's been changed by the gospel versus a, a culture that just likes Christianity because whenever it's advantageous to be Christian. To be able to have eyes to see that kind of stuff might be helpful. So take a couple minutes um, to just pray, reflect, and then I'll close in prayer. God, I thank you for these students. I'm thankful for the time that that you have them here in Stillwater. Um, I I pray that uh, this year, this semester, especially these first couple weeks, God, that they would seek you with all their heart. That whatever they have going on in their life, God, that they can come to you about. that, That you can speak into their life about that you can work in their life about God, that you can show them a better way so God I I lift them up I lift up uh, just their, their ability to discern and to see themselves the way you see them as a child of yours loved and adorned by you but also broken God, all of us are broken before you and left to our own, God, we would never choose You. We would never, we would never seek to, to do what You would want, but God, because of You, because of Your Spirit, because of Jesus, we can know who You are and we can follow after You. And God, you're, You can change us and transform us into who You've created us to be. So God, I pray that they would have eyes to see what You want them to see, And that they would follow you, um, and and abandon themselves, deny themselves, and follow after you. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. All right. So, last couple things is if you had a uh, a card.